But go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Paul's letter to Titus. Today, we, we bring our quick journey through this uh, short five-week uh, ser five series to an end through our walk with Titus. A letter that Paul wrote to Titus, uh, one of his uh, men that he had discipled, one that he had groomed, a protege, if you will. He wrote this letter as, as a blueprint for building healthy, thriving churches for the glory of God. See, Paul, Paul left Titus in Crete to, to put what remained in Crete in, in order, to, to appoint elders in every town, every local church. Why? Why, why, why did Paul do this? Why did Paul give these instructions to Titus? One, because the island of Crete was filled with unhealthy churches. It was filled with unhealthy teachings. So he says, you gotta got to get this in order. We've got to appoint elders in every town. And two, because Paul knew that God's means for making disciples of all nations, for fulfilling the Great Commission, has been and always will be by establishing healthy, thriving local churches. Where the gospel is preached, where sound doctrine is taught, where Christians are growing in godliness, are, are, are being held accountable to the Word, and are encouraging one another in the faith. Churches that are serving as bright lights in the dark world in which we live. When we look through Titus and we come back and we see the overarching theme of this book, we see kind of the, the overarching thing that we see is the importance of teaching. Specifically teaching the gospel. It's kind of like Paul is saying to Titus, okay, let's start with, let's go back to, let's stay with the basics. <laughs> right here. It's like Vince Lombardi. How many of you know Vince Lombardi? This is football-wise. All right, I'm going to give a little more application to that. Vince Lombardi was an NFL football coach of the Green Bay Packers. And he would start off every season. I mean, NFL football players here. He would start off any, every season holding out a football in his right hand and said, okay, gentlemen, this is a football. He would go back to basics. And for Paul, there was nothing more basic nor more profound than the gospel. It's the beautiful thing about the gospel. It, it's simple enough for a child to understand, yet profound enough that even the world's greatest theological minds will never be able to fully comprehend it. It's beautiful. That's the great thing about the gospel. Now, you ever watch the Olympics? Anybody? I, I, I love the Olympics. Name your favorite sport real quick. I heard swimming. All right, there we go. That's the direction I'm going. Anyway, I, all the other sports are great. Badminton and tennis and foosball. I don't know if foosball is an Olympic sport, but it should be um, back in the day. But anyway, swimming is one of those sports where, where you're looking at it you're saying, I can do that, but I can't do that. Uh, it's, like, it's one of those common. And all the sports in the Olympics are kind of that way. Like every sport in the Olympics is one of those sports that we either can do or could learn to do. There's nothing there that is beyond the realm of possibility. We just can't learn to do them necessarily at that level. But take swimming, for example. How many of you in this room can swim? All right, the vast majority of, Brian, you can't swim. The vast majority of people in this room, they can swim. You can swim. But we, we all had to start somewhere. We had to start with what? The basics. So the basics, even these world-class swimmers, like the worst Olympic swimmer is like way above like how it ever was. I was a pretty good swimmer back in the day. But like the worst Olympic swimmer is like, woohoo, way up there. 
They still started with the basics. You know what they had to do? Same thing you and I had to do. They had to learn to get in the water. They had to learn to put their face in the water. They had to learn how to float in the water. They had to learn to be able to, to breathe properly. If they wanted to be able to start swimming competitively as they did with proper stroke technique and not just like doggy paddle crazy stuff. They, they had to learn how to make turns and go through the process and all these different things. And, and then you watch the Olympics. And what happens if they don't breathe correctly? They, get, they slow down. They're going to look like a fool. They're going to lose energy. What happens if they don't do a stroke right? Or they, they miss a turn. They don't do it correctly. They miss the basics. What happens? Aaron, what happens? They lose. They're, they're disqualified. They're, they're done. All of those things come back to the basics. The same thing is true with the church. It's why Paul is telling Titus to train up then train up people within the church, appoint elders in every local town, every local church to preach and teach the gospel. Because it all starts and ends with the gospel. We never can move past it. We can never fully comprehend it. And once we begin to learn the doctrine of the gospel, we're also learning how to apply the gospel, to live according to the gospel, it's always coming back to this each and every day. We see it over and over and over again. And why is this? Why was it this way for Titus? Why was it this for the island of Crete? Why was it this way for Paul? Why is it this way for us? One, Paul's just telling them plain and simple, I want you to have assurance of your salvation. I want you to have the hope of eternal life. I want you to have this. I want you to be able to run the race. And not only run the race, I want you to be able to finish the race well. You might not be an Olympic athlete. You don't have to be. But he doesn't want you to get disqualified. He doesn't want you to miss the mark. And, and he also wants them to be an effective witness to the watching world. An effective, faithful witness. So today, Paul closes with a reminder. A reminder of the importance of the basics. The importance of living lives that are consistent and dependent upon the work of Christ in our lives. Not just in the church, not just in our homes, but in our everyday life within the world. Continue. So we, we dive in, Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. 
These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a man who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to, to me at the conference, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Paulus on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help care cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So this is the conclusion of Paul's three-chapter letter to Titus. And what we're going to do today is we're going to break it down in, in three parts, this last chapter. And what we're really going to do is just kind of look at the basics of Christianity. You can call it Christianity 101. Healthy Church 101. Starting with, number one, Christians will be known by their good works. Christians will be known by their good works. And as we've already said, this isn't just in the church. This isn't just in the home, but it's in the world we live in. So last week, we, we looked at, in chapter 2 at what godly living looks like in the home, what it looks like in the church. That, that's basically chapter 2. And he said in chapter 2, this is only possible by the gospel. Now we're coming into chapter 3, and this week Paul's continuing his focus on the importance of godly living. But this time, he's focusing on actions and life outside of the church in the world of which we are living. As Paul writes in verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Here's Paul specifically addressing their and our interaction with those outside of the church the world outside of the church. He's saying, okay, this right here, brothers and sisters, this is basic gospel application for your life outside of the home, outside of the church. When you're going to work, when you're living life in your community, this is basic gospel application. And he starts with, of all things, submitting to rulers and authorities. He's saying, okay, you're going to submit to your government, your bosses, those God has given to rule over you. And it's like he's going straight to the jugular, right out of the gate, like, boom, I'm going to hit you right in the throat with this one. And here's why I say that, because if we think our context is hard, like we think it's hard living within our government construct, or we think it's hard working with the bosses that we have in, in, in this world, that they're not saying anything, and like, you know, we have that type of structure, what if we lived in North Korea and we're reading the same gospel, the same letters? What if we're living in Iran or Iraq or, or Libya or Yemen and all those places? And let's not even go there. Let's just go right back to the original context. Let's go right back here and, and let's look and remind of the context of this letter, which was written sometime around the mid-60s A.D., which would have been sometime during the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero. How many of you have heard of the Roman Emperor Nero? Okay? Let's just say Roman Emperor Nero, not known as being a compassionate good guy. 
Like, cruel doesn't even begin to describe this joker at all. Like, just to give you a glimpse of his brutality and his mind, he, he starts and he says, you know what, I'm going to burn Rome. I'm going to set it on fire. So he has his officials and, and leaders. They burn it. And so he, he sets it on fire. Why would he do that? Because he's like, well, I'm gone. I don't want anything else to be left either. It's all built around him. In his mindset, it's all revolving about his egotistical, self-centered focus. And then people get ticked off. Can you blame them? Like burning down the city. So he's mad. They're mad. And so they're blaming him. So he's like, yeah, I'm not taking the heat for this. And now he starts blaming who? The Christians. He starts to bring down heavy laden persecution upon the church during this time period. Like doing things such so grotesque where he would take the skins of wild animals, wild beasts, he would tie Christians up inside of those skins and then feed them to wild dogs. He would take, make shirts of wax, put the Christians in these outfits, these shirts, hang them on a pole, set them in the garden, and let them ablaze to light up his garden. Human candles. We could, the list could go on and on of what we're, we're hearing. Here's Paul himself writing this letter in between imprisonment before, just a few years before his execution, saying, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Now, what Paul's not saying here is saying that if your government is telling you to do something unbiblical, unethical, illegal, or immoral, that you should do it. That's, that's not what he's saying here. Those early Christians would not have burned as candles and fed to wild dogs if they were not committed to following God above all else. Paul himself would not have been in prison. He would not have been executed if he was not committed to following Christ above all else. But even in their civic disobedience, if you're watching Paul's life, if you're watching these early Christian martyrs, you're watching, they are still to be gentle. They were still to, to be committed and show perfect courtesy toward all people. And who would all people still include? Nero. It would still say you've got to show him courtesy. But why would that be the case? Why? Because the end game wasn't about them having their best life now. The end game wasn't about having prosperity and health and wealth and fun living and good times, safe, comfortable Christianity. That's not what we see. What was the end game? It was about advancing the gospel. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. Instead of squelching the spirit of the early Christians, instead of stopping the advancement of the gospel, the persecution did just the opposite. It, it fanned that flame, per se, even hotter and even more advanced. People saw godly actions of the church, even in the midst of the persecution, seeing these Christians saying, how in the world are they able to respond in such a way? Actions that were consistent with and only possible because of the gospel they believe. And in that bit of persecution, doors were opened up even wider for them to be able to proclaim and to testify to the truth of God. Their actions were testifying to who they are and what happened. The gospel began to spread. And it continues to spread. 
We even see today in, in places with the greatest persecution upon the church, in those areas, the gospel is spreading further and faster than anywhere else in the world. So your boss may be the most ungodly person that you have ever met. You no doubt will, will be frustrated by, treated disrespectfully by co-workers, neighbors. They may make life unbearable at times. But yet when we respond in godliness, when we hold our character high, when we continue to let our lives be that of the gospel, we're doing two things. One, we're giving evidence of our own salvation. We're providing evidence that we are followers of Christ. And two, we're providing a strong, healthy, evangelistic witness to the watching world. People are saying, okay, I would never respond that way. How? How can people be on their way to their martyrdom and still be singing psalms and hymns and praises to God? How? How can people be in the midst of family turmoil and strife and tragedy and still say, my joy and my hope is found in Christ alone? How? Well, here's how. The point number two, Christians are not saved by their good works. Christians are not saved by their good works. In verse three, Paul sets forth a contrast to verses one and two saying, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and in envy, hated by others and hating one another. He's describing who they once were. And the key words here being were once. You notice that? He's showing past tense. These things once describe us, but they describe us no more. It's the quick and simple acknowledgement that the before coming to faith in Christ, regardless of the age of which we were saved, if we were saved, regardless, we were all, every single one of us in this room, we were all disobedient. We were all led astray. We were all slaves to various passions and pleasures of this world. But, Paul said, we are that way no longer. Why? Because of what Christ did for us. This is where Paul makes a beeline for the cross. Right in here, this is a great theological, one of the most descriptive descriptions of the gospel we see anywhere in the Bible. He, he wants to get to the gospel as fast and as clearly as he can. Because none of this, none of the good works, none of the godly living is possible in our lives without the gospel without Christ working in our lives. So after making the contrast in verse 3, he says, starting in verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And let's just slow down for a moment. And let's let this begin to sink in. Because if you are a Christian here today, this is what's happened in your life. Everything that we're about to look through and study, this is what has happened in your life. This is what makes godly living possible. So remembering verse 3, we ourselves were once 
were once what? We were once dead in our sins. We were nothing more than a spiritual corpse. We were controlled by our sin. We were controlled by Satan and the world. We were a people condemned with no hope, with no future. But, but, this is one of those good news buts that are coming our way. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, what happened? Church, what happened? What follows there? He did what? He saved us. He saved us. Think back to Colossians. He delivered us who were dead in our trespasses and sin. He delivered us from the domain of darkness, which we were happily dwelling in. We were comfortable dwelling in. He delivered us from that domain of darkness and did what? He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, he saved us. How? That's again the question, how? How can someone dead in their sin receive this redemption? How can they receive this forgiveness? How can we be saved? Is it because of something we've done? Is it because we have some merit in our life? This is not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not because of anything we've done. We were spiritually dead. But literally no spiritual pulse whatsoever. We were spiritually as dead as Lazarus in the tomb. Anything good we had ever done was like filthy rags in the eyes of holy God. That's what we see in text. Even on our very best day, our very best day, try to think about your very, very best day. We have nothing, nothing to offer and to give to God. Nothing. No righteousness upon ourselves. None. And friend, if you have never realized that, if you at any moment are thinking that you have something to bring to God, if you have something within you that can earn favor with God, if there's any type of work-based righteousness in you, if you believe that, then you have never been saved. You've never been and I would love to be able to talk with you further after this. But for those of us who, by God's grace and God's grace alone, who have recognized our complete dependence upon God for our salvation, let this understanding of the gospel draw our hearts to worship. Let us draw us further and further to thanksgiving and to praise this morning. He saved us. He saved us, not by our works, but how? According to His own mercy. Mercy being us not receiving what we deserve. Us not receiving God's that we deserve. So He saved us. He saved us from our slavery to sin. He gave us a spiritual heartbeat, a spiritual pulse. He, he rescued us from death, from hell, and from the judgment we deserve. Now why? Why would He do this? Why would God do this for such a, a bunch of disobedient sinners as we have gathered here today? Why? Because of His loving kindness. Because of His loving kindness. Out of His loving kindness, 
He had mercy upon us. How? By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration being the we who were filthy have been made clean. We've been made new. We have been born again. We are a recreation. We are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. This has nothing to do with our physical baptism. But our physical baptism illustrates this beautifully. This is the picture we're proclaiming to a watching world when we step into those baptismal waters. But what we're saying is this is, has everything to do with our spiritual baptism. This has everything to do with the purifying of our unclean hearts. But again, how is this possible? Because he who knew no sin became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And let's not think for a moment that the cross was primarily about nails being thrust in the hands and the feet of Jesus. Because it was not. Jesus was not sweating drops of blood in the garden the night before His crucifixion because He was scared of some nails and a wooden cross. He was not. Jesus knew that upon that cross, all of God's holy hatred towards sin, hatred and wrath that had been stored up since Genesis chapter 3 for all of humanity, was about to be levied upon Him. And yet He still, in His loving kindness, He went faithfully and obediently to the cross. And as He hung there, every drop, of the righteous judgment and wrath of God that we deserve was levied upon Him. Every single drop. One preacher described it as if you were standing a short hundred feet or hundred yards away from a dam that is 10,000 miles high and 10,000 miles wide, full of water. And in the moment that dam breached, it broke all the water, came crashing down before you to your destruction. And just before it reached you, ground opened up and the water was swallowed up before it touched you. Not even one drop touched you. And at the cross of Christ, it was Jesus who drank every last drop. He drank the wrath of the cup that we deserve. That we had, he drank every last drop and when he was finished, brothers and sisters, you know what he cried out? It is finished. Once and for all, forever, and in doing so, making we who have faith in Christ clean before our holy Amen. But not done yet. We're not just made clean before God. We're made right before God. We're made right before God. As he continues in verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So in receiving God's mercy, we didn't receive the penalty we deserved. Instead, Christ stood in our place condemned, substituting himself for us, taking on our punishment for himself, justifying us by his grace. Justified meaning we have been declared right, made right. We are justified before God. 
Grace meaning the opposite of mercy here. Now we are receiving what we do not deserve. So all together what we're seeing here is we will now stand before God just as if we had never seen And just as if we had obeyed God's law perfectly all our life. Because of the work of Christ at the cross. Nothing else. We will stand before Him as heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And Paul declares more fully in his letter to Romans, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Brothers and sisters, if we have faith in Christ, we have been adopted by God. We have been adopted as sons and daughters of the King. And we are heirs, heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. And just as we did nothing to earn our salvation, there is nothing we can do to lose our salvation. We are forever a new creation. Forever a child. Let that encourage your soul. Let that bring you to it. And as the child of God, brothers and sisters, we begin to slowly take on the image of our Father, of our Father, of the Son. That's the beautiful picture of the gospel. This is the reminder that I have every single day when I wake up and have a little child crawling in bed. Regardless of, of age, whether the child is adopted as an infant or as a toddler or, or much older, they begin to take on the image of the baby. Now the older the child is, the more likely they've been influenced by their past life. They've been adopted internationally. We've got friends that are coming over and the parents are like as southern as they come. And, and they're like child coming over from Ethiopia, sticking on park, and they're like, ah. and, but gradually, you know what begins to happen? The child begins to, to learn the language of the family. A little Ethiopian on park accent begins to pick up a little southern drawl, a little accent. They begin to take on the image of mommy and daddy and new family, brothers and sisters, whether good or bad in the process. Doesn't happen all overnight either, does it? No. It takes time. It takes tears. But eventually there's that moment when someone observing your child says, You're Jeremy's son. You're Lee's child. I knew it. I knew it was good. Tell by the way that the same holds true for every one of us who the world looks at something different. Christians will continue in good works. Christians will continue in good works. In verse 8, Paul tells Titus that the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. 
As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So as Christians, we're identified by our work. We're identified by how, how we live. So we look at us in the world and say, yes. you, you are taking on the show. They may not put it in those terms, but they know that they give but praise God that we're not saved by our good works. Amen? Because if that were the case, none of us in this room would be saved. None of us. But if we have genuine faith in Christ, Scripture is clear that we will continue in those good works. We will continue in God's living. We will persevere in faith. Because God's living is the fruit of genuine it's proof of our adoption. See, that's the beautiful, again, picture of adoption, that there is nothing, even in the courts, that can happen for Brian to ever be disowned from our family. He is legally binding our child forever. Nothing is going to change this. But mine is his, and it is, well, not mine, but what is mine is his. He is receiving it all, which won't be much. But he gets it. <laughs> But how many of us in this room have seen none, none, none of us in this room have seen it. In the eyes of God, we are. But we, how many of us still struggle with sin to this day? Okay. I'll put the two hands up here. Like we all still struggle with sin. Christian, once we come to Christ, we're, we're not going to be sinless, but we're now cleansed from that sin. We're justified. We're made right before God. There, there may even be times where we, we find ourselves drifting into a short season or season of sin, falling into sin. And, and so then it begins this confusion. There's a, a conflict. Well, how do you, what, what's the church supposed to do when this happens? This person is claiming to be a follower of Christ, but now we're not seeing the evidence of this. Like, what are we to do as a church? Well, praise God, he's, he's thought about these things. <laughs> he, he's thought about how, how to protect his church. And throughout this letter, whether it's, it's a false teacher or someone who has been deceived by false teaching or, or someone who's not who's living their life not in accordance with sound teaching, with the gospel, we've seen Paul instruct Titus to do several different things. One is like silence the deceivers, rebuke the deceived, correct the unbelievers. You've got to take action here. Why? Because... Others in the church were being harmed. You've got to protect them. Two, the witness of the church was being affected. You've got to make sure you preserve the integrity of the witness of the church. And three, the offenders were in need of correction. Just so they could be punked out? Just so they could be told they're wrong? No, so that they may be sound in the faith. We've seen this laid out already through Titus. You see, while these actions were firm actions, like you're not just going up to somebody and saying, no, I just want to be sensitive here. He's rebuking. He's silencing. He's coming at this strong. They're always done with love. They're always done with teaching. Always done with correcting, redemption, restoration in mind. But what if these individuals continue in their sin after being confronted? What happens then? What is the church to do then? Well, Paul tells us in verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is 
warped and sinful itself can do. This is what we know as church discipline. And to some, it sounds harsh and probably because it's coming from all kinds of convoluted misunderstandings and seeing it practiced in bad ways. And various people have been today, sadly, have seen it practiced biblically and faithfully. But it's one of the most important things that a church can do. It's one of the most loving things that a church can do. For, for the individual who's, who's struggling, for the individual who needs correction, for, for the church itself, and for the witness of the watching world. In fact, it's essential to the health and the witness of every local church. So let's think about it pragmatically for a moment. Let's, let's sticking with the theme of Titus, let's kind of illustrate this and think, walk through what this would look like. Let's say someone in our church fellowship claiming to be a follower of Christ, and to one time or another, we have admitted them into partnership, membership into our body. We have affirmed with the best of our knowledge that they are a brother and sister in Christ. That their life at that point in time was according with godliness. But now, they, they are not according with godliness. Let's say that they are giving in to, and beginning to buy into false teaching. And not just teaching that is like different, like, oh, I believe this about Genesis 1 and 2. And I believe this about Genesis 1 and 2, the creation. No, I'm talking about, they're talking about teaching that's counter to the gospel that we just preached, that we just heard. They're taking that or they're living lives that are contrary to this gospel. Yet they're claiming to be a believer. What do we do? What do we do as a church? Do we just let them continue to believe something that's counter to the gospel? Do we just continue to let them live in ungodliness because we don't want to offend them? What, what do we do as a church? We go to them with our concerns. We go to them in love and lovingly make them aware of their error, of the inconsistency in their living. Maybe they don't realize they're wrong. Maybe they've never been taught otherwise. Maybe they, they just need somebody to lovingly come next to them and to be able to lovingly correct them and rebuke them and, and just kind of steer them in the proper direction. Maybe that, that, that's what they need. And, and what happens then if they receive that well, they repent, they continue walking in the faith? What do you do? You rejoice. <laughs> you're, you're just training out your teaching. You're holding one another accountable in the faith. What's that, what's, what's that person done? They've given credible evidence that they are a follower of Christ. They're receiving direction from the Word of God. And they're directing their life to be led by the Word of God. But now what happens if they don't receive that correction well? Well, they don't repent. What do we do then? But what if they just ignore us? We go to them a second time. Matthew 18 says, tell us to take another believer with us. Take, take more with you. Again, you, you go to them in love. You begin to talk with them, teach with them, be patient with them. This may take a period of time. You're not trying to rush this. They're like, yeah, I went yesterday, now I'm going today. Oh, sorry. You know, that, that, that's not what we're seeing here. We're just lovingly, patiently trying to, to see this person walk according to the Word of God. But what if they don't? What do you do then? What if they refuse to repent? Refuse to be corrected? What do you do? Paul says very clearly here, have nothing more to do with them. Matthew says, bring them before the church. Basically, let the entire church then begin to plead with them to repent. Repent, to, uh, to follow the gospel, to believe the gospel, to hold true to the gospel. 
And this is for the church. This isn't just for the elders to do. This is for the entire church is to do this, to come alongside. And if they continue to refuse, then we as the church remove them from membership. We prohibit them from coming to the Lord's table. We no longer call them a brother or sister in Christ because they refuse to submit to the Word of God. Their actions, their works are no longer evidence of saving faith. There's none. So as we as a church, as such, we, we can no longer affirm that person in good conscience to be a brother or sister in Christ. And doing this lovingly, the church is intended to do two things. One, we don't provide that person with a false assurance of their salvation. We don't want them believing they're a Christian, thinking that they're on having the hope of eternal life when all the evidence says contrary. So he says we have nothing more to do with them. Like completely? Like we don't even like to talk to them at all? He says, I believe this to be said, and I think others are saying this as well. We have nothing more to do with them as a brother or sister in Christ. We tell them we don't believe that by the evidence in their life that they are a follower of Christ. We're saying this lovingly. But that doesn't mean that we should not continue to evangelize. If anything, this turns our focus to now we say, okay, I'm treating you as a lost person. I'm going to do everything in my power to be praying for you to come to faith in Christ. I want to continue to share the gospel with you. I want you to believe. We don't want them to be wandering out in this world, the valentine of the world. We want, and what happens then if they do believe? We receive them back into the fellowship. We rejoice at the grace of God in their life. We rejoice. Two, it serves to protect the evangelistic witness of the local church. Because everyone that we receive into membership, our partnership here at Harvest Point, every single one, we are saying, this is what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. But if someone's not walking with Christ, it hurts all of us, doesn't it? And it hurts the message that we're proclaiming, attempting to proclaim. So the overarching purpose of Paul's letter to Titus is to plant and build churches that will not only survive, but will thrive for the glory of God. And it starts and it ends with the teaching of the gospel. So this is why we as a church and as individuals can never, ever move past the basics of the gospel. We must continue to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. But we need to wake up and go to bed preaching the gospel to ourselves, understanding we are known by our works. But we are not saved by our works. But if we are in Christ, we will continue in good works for the glory of God. That's the evidence of our salvation. Today I close with just three questions. Three questions. Are your works identify you as a follower of Christ? Are your works identifying you as a follower of Christ? Are you trusting, number two, are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? And three, are you currently faithfully walking with Christ? If your answer is no, 
any of those questions, I'm going to challenge you during this song and after this service today that you do not leave without talking to myself, one of our other elders, Zach, will be in the back for to pray with you, to talk with you. If you have questions, you can email us afterwards. Do not let this go unanswered. If you answer no to any of these questions, deal with it today. Go to the Lord and pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gospel. For the work of your son. So while we recognize we're not saved by our works, we we are saved by you. As such, Lord, I pray that we as a church body will continue to walk in faith. Holding one another accountable, encouraging one another in the faith, and helping one another grow in God. Lord, continue to raise up elders, raise up godly older men and older women, younger men and younger women who faithfully teach and live out the gospel. That we as Harvest Point Community Church will be a bright gospel light in this community and in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.